Stand to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning verse 36. We have three Bibles, that is on page 1007. Reading Hebrews 10, 36 through 11, 7. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. God, you may be seated. I grew up hearing legends about my dad and his speed on the track. His high school track team was the first team to win the conference uh, at the school. And my dad went to state in 200 meter with a cast up to his elbow uh, because he broke his wrist playing football. And uh, you know, the difference between football season and track season are quite a ways apart. He broke his wrist playing football, finished the football season, uh, was on the farm doing chores, probably right around track time in the spring, and passed out from the pain and said to his stepdad, who was a very hard-nosed old farmer, um, I think I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> and finally, he's got a cast up past his elbow and ran track and went to the state, went to state in 200 meters. So uh, my dad had some wheels. Uh, the only time I remember seeing him run was in uh, Little League, like T-ball Little League time. Uh, we had a parents versus kids baseball game. My dad hit the ball and ran to first base. I remember like, wow, he's really fast. Uh, needless to say, I did not inherit my dad's wheels. Um, I played sports in high school and I hated running. Uh, when I was in wrestling, running was after practice or at the end of practice after being exhausted from wrestling, going into the hallway in the school and running and running and running until you felt like you wanted 
to collapse in this absolute fortune. Uh, Lindsay, when we got married, Lindsay always loved running, so she would say, hey, let's go on a run. And I would be like, oh, I hate running. It's like the worst thing ever. And finally, uh, at the age of 29, we were living in Quinming, and I was uh, a little bit out of shape and feeling like I need to start doing some exercise. So I put on some sweats, and I went on a, a jog uh, around the block that we lived on, which was like an entire mile. That's how huge the city block was. Uh, where we went to go the whole mile. And I hated it, uh, but I stuck with it. And shortly after I started doing that, I met a guy who had ran a couple marathons, and I started running with him, and he kind of spurred me on and encouraged me and continued to, to increase my mileage and continue to see, like, oh, this is actually really possible to keep kind of increasing and getting better. And eventually I ran a half marathon. Now, I'm not here to brag about my achievements. I don't have a 13.1 sticker on my car. Uh, actually, my favorite stickers that I've ever seen are the ones that say 0.0, and then underneath it says, put seriously, good for you. Um, I love that. It's, it's just hilarious. It's like you say, running, and uh, I kind of like it. But, but I share all that because I do want to talk about running. Because running is a metaphor that is used by Paul, it's also used by an author of Hebrews. In Hebrews, running is specifically tied to the theme of endurance. The sermon title, if you see there, the worship guide is Endurance in the Race of Life. You've probably heard someone compare the Christian life not to a sprint, uh, not to a 100 meter or a 200 meter, but to a distance race. The Christian life is indeed a marathon. It's not sprint. Let's think for a second about the difference. What happens in, you probably all watch like Olympics, right? What happens in the 100 and the 200 meters? Like, what are, what are our eyes glued to in Olympic running? It's the 100 meter and the 200 meter, right? Because there's this Go as fast as you can, right? Go as hard as you can, as fast as you can in a short amount of time. Nobody sits down to watch the Olympic marathon. Come on. Like, Even if you love distance running, you can sit down and watch it. The sprinting is, is where it's at, right? All you've got in a short amount of time, Jamaica's Usain Bolt world record holder in both categories, 9.58 seconds in the 100 meter and 19.19 seconds in 200 meter. Unbelievable. Kenya's Eliud Kipchoge, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but yes, I need to look it up. Uh, he holds the world record in the marathon of two hours and one minute and 39 seconds, which is completely insane, right? Uh, most normal people take between three and four hours to run a marathon. Uh, but training for a marathon is very different than training for sprinting. It's time-consuming, it's physically demanding, not that sprinting and training isn't, but in a different way. It involves an element of, of suffering and endurance and, and pain to your body that I think sprinters don't experience in the exact same way. If you were a sprinter, you want to argue with me about that. It's okay, but there is a difference. Well, how does, how does this tie in with Hebrews? Maybe you hate running and it's like, shut up already, I don't want to hear about running. But this does tie in with Hebrews, especially where we are at. Last week, we kind of turned this corner in chapter 11 after 
six chapters of instructions about Jesus being our great high priest. We are now kind of coming into this home stretch here in Hebrews. And this is where our training is meant to pay off. Basically, we are to take everything that we know and believe and have been taught to be true, and we are to live these things out. We are to finish the race strongly. So we begin to see this theme emerging. We saw this last week in verse 19 and following, that we have confidence now to enter into the holy places since Jesus is our great high priest. And we saw those three exhortations starting in verse 22. Let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then those exhortations were followed by this contrast of those who turn away from Jesus, and then a reminder of how God has worked in his people, those who do not turn away. We are we were called to remember, look at verse 32, remember how you endured this hard struggle with sufferings. And then it talked about different things that we experience, that they experience, and that we experience. And then it's all verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And we mentioned last week that we, we stopped there in verse 35 because that whole section was bookended with beginning with talking about confidence and then ending with speaking of confidence. Now we start here today in verse 36, because endurance now becomes this highlighted theme. It actually reaches back into verses 32 to 35 with suffering and hope of the future reward. And we're going to see a whole bunch of themes tied together here that really bookend the contents of chapter 11, which I think this is really important that we understand this here. And here's why we need to get this right. Okay? What is Hebrews chapter 11, commonly called? Hall of Faith, right? Now, I'm not sure where that term, or when that term originated. I don't know if it's a play on the term Hall of Fame, uh, but there's, think of that probably when you think of these words. The Hall of Fame is a place where pro athletes are enshrined, right? They're remembered long after they die. If you ever watch the Pro Football Hall of Fame speeches, the bronze busts are unveiled. They take the thing off, and this player gets to look at this bronze bust of himself. And, and they talk about the players being immortalized. I went and did some reading on this, and this guy who, who makes these bronze busts, uh, they claim that these busts will last for up to 40,000 years. Uh, not sure how they can know that, but their best guess is that these busts will last 40,000 years. So there's this idea that these players are immortalized, right? Like even the building where they're at isn't going to obviously last 40,000 years. They might be buried under the ground, but supposedly these bronze busts will last for 40,000 years. And in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the players and the coaches and the broadcasters who have these bronze busts made of them, they are the heroes, right? And if we're not careful, we can read Hebrews chapter 11, and we can make these Old Testament saints into heroes the same way that we make pro athletes into heroes, right? But they are not intended to be the heroes. They are not the ones who, in the same way we think of pro football players being immortalized with these bronze busts. That is not what 
this is about, right? I'm not supposed to like make this bronze bust of Moses and say, oh, may you live forever, Moses, right? <laughs> they are those, those in Hebrews chapter 11, they are those who live in a fallen world just like we do. They are those who had to walk by faith and not by sight, just as we do. Now, this sermon is really going to serve as a bookend around Hebrews chapter 11 that both introduces and then concludes this picture of these great saints of old. There will no doubt be some repetition when we come back around in a few weeks to chapter 12, but I think we need these reminders, don't we? It's good to be reminded of it today, and it's going to be good to hear it again in a few weeks. So let's look at verse 36, chapter 10, verse 36 first. We're going to notice a few key themes, and then we're going to jump to the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, and we're going to see how these themes bookend chapter 11, okay? Then we'll come back and we're going to walk through 10, 37 through 11, 7. Okay, starting in 1036. First, we are told that we have need of endurance. It says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance is something that we can't run the race of the Christian life without. It is what the process of training actually produces in us. Endurance doesn't, you don't have endurance when you first start out, right? I threw on my sweats and went to that treacherous one-mile run around our block when I was really out of shape. I had no endurance, right? It was miserable. Endurance was something that was gained over a long time. So we're told here that we have need of endurance. Next, notice the phrase, so that when you have done the will of God, there is a forward-lookingness to our endurance. We don't endure for our own glory. Who gets the glory in an earthly race? The runner, right? The runner gets the glory. They get the medal around their neck. They get their picture taken. They get all this praise. Right? They put the sticker on their car. Maybe someone is running for a cause. Right? That's a good thing. They're running for and motivated for something outside of themselves. But still, enduring that type of punishment to your body always comes with some personal glory, right? You're going to post your time on Facebook, or you're going to tell your friends about it. There's always some, even if it's, right, like it's a little altruistic, like you're still, you're still doing it for personal glory. A Christian is our call to run the race of life for the glory of God. Even the reward, which is mentioned here at the end of Verse 35, and the phrase, the phrase or the, that's mentioned in 35, and the phrase here um, that you may receive what is promised in verse 36, this is not about us. It's about God being glorified in and through those through whom He has worked out His good purposes and fulfilled His promises. Let me try and prove this to us. Look down with me at Hebrews 11, verse 13. Speaking of Abraham and the patriarchs here, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What does it say here? It says they did not receive the things promised because they knew their place in this world. They knew that they were angels. 
strangers in an alien tribe. Not angels. They were not angels. <laughs> Aliens. So it says that they did not receive the things promised. So does that mean that they did not endure and do the will of God? Right? That's what 1036 says, right? So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. But it says that they did not receive what is promised. Well, what's going on here? Look down a little bit further with me in chapter 11. To that last little paragraph at the end of the chapter, which is 39 and 40. And all these, which is not just Abraham and the patriarchs, but this entire list of those in the Old Testament, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Notice the importance of our endurance to the end, for their receiving of the promises. This is what is communicated to us in the beloved opening verses of chapter 12. Look with me there at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who were just spoken of in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Many have gone before us, many have run this race before us, and they are waiting for us at the finish line. They are cheering us on so that we might all receive the promises together. So our endurance in the race matters. It matters to them, right? We'll see as we walk through chapter 11 that by faith, they all were looking forward to something at the end of the race that was greater than their earthly possessions and their identity. Though they didn't fully understand it at the time, they were looking to Jesus the long-awaited Messiah. And we know that we are supposed to look to Jesus. We are supposed to fix our eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? Faith being this main theme of chapter 11, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross for us. And that is to be the motivation for our endurance. Okay, we look to him. We don't look to ourselves. We don't look to our own strength and our own ability. We look to Jesus. Now, I'm getting way ahead of us here, all right, in the text. But the whole argument of chapter 11 cannot be made apart from what we see at the end of chapter 10 here. And then at the end of chapter 11 and beginning of, first of, of chapter 12. Context, context. Context. We have to read chapter 11 in the context of these realities. So now let us go back and look at the rest of chapter 10 before we dive into chapter 11. In verses 37 and 38, our author quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2. The emphasis in verse 38 is that righteousness is by faith. Paul quotes the same verse in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. 
to describe the truth of the gospel, that we are not justified before God by anything that we can do, but by faith alone. It was in reading Romans 1.17 that Martin Luther claimed to clearly understand that the righteousness that Paul was speaking of here was an alien righteousness. It was a righteousness that was outside of himself, a righteousness that belonged to another. This is something that Luther and all his struggling, Luther had no assurance of this righteousness in all his strivings as a monk. And then he read Romans 1.17 that righteousness comes by faith. And as he later famously said, he said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. We can't miss this reality in all of our discussion of the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 and how they are meant to be an encouragement to us. We will see that they were commended by God. But that's because they also believed and trusted in a righteousness that was outside of themselves, just as we must. They were saved by faith in Jesus alone, just as we are. And that's what's being driven home here at the end of chapter 10. It's that there are only two ways to live. That contrast is seen in verses 38 and 39. We're either living by faith or we're shrinking back. We're either pleasing God or we're not pleasing God. Our author is confident about his audience here. He says in verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. In fact, last week, we saw in verses 26 to 31, that was the people who turned away from Christ, right? Those are the people who shrink back. Our author again here is saying, this is not you. You are not those who shrink back, but you are those who have faith in the endure, which we saw in verses 32 to 35 last week. There is this clear contrast between these two types of people. Our author is going to, again, reassure his audience that they are those who are, are enduring and trusting in Christ by faith. Now, throughout his life, we've seen multiple warnings about not giving up. Remember, this original audience, they were being tempted to turn their backs on Jesus. They were being encouraged by others to return to reliance on their former ways under Judaism. This is what shrinking back would look like for them. They would be going back to the temple, going back to relying upon the Old Testament sacrificial system. What does shrinking back look like for us today? I love how commentator Dennis Johnson summarized the end of chapter 10 in our need for endurance. He said, faith in Jesus meets stiff opposition in every age. The parable of the sower shows that various forces work against our endurance all the way until the time of the harvest. We highlighted this last week. Then he goes on to show how this applies to us today in America. He says, in cultures enamored with fluidity and flexibility in relationships, personal identity, and religious allegiance, the stamina of faith in Jesus faces even ever, sorry, even greater challenges. But the Lord assures us that he will come and will not delay. And he takes pleasure in people who trust him persistently. 
His promises supply and sustain the endurance we need. Now, while this might not sound comforting at first glance, the reality that our faith is going to meet stiff opposition, it actually is a comforting thing. That's going to be a big theme in chapter 11 as we look at the faith of those who have gone before us. But before our author begins to walk us down this hallway of the Hall of Faith, he makes sure that we are all on the same page so that we know what he means when he begins to say, by faith, so-and-so did such-and-such a thing. So the question first that we must ask is, what is faith? See, probably one of the most famous, most well-known definitions of faith in all of Scripture, right here in Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we see this parallelism here in this definition. Assurance and conviction are parallel with each other, and the things hoped for and the things not seen are parallel with each other. Basically, those are the same thing. It's basically saying the same thing in kind of two different ways. Our assurance or confidence or trust is in God who has proven himself faithful, and therefore we have the conviction or the proof or evidence, as some other translations translate that word, that he will keep his promises even though what we hope for is not yet seen. There is a certainty and an assurance of something that we don't yet see, something that we hope for that is still future. Paul describes this in a couple ways. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, We walk by faith, not by sight. And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, Paul says that we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is no hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That word that Paul uses there for patience is the same word the author of Hebrews uses for endurance in 10.36. We wait for what we do not see in hope. We wait with patience for endurance. We have a need for endurance. This is what faith is for us, just as it has always been for the people of God. That's what we're told in verse 2. The saints of old, it says, received their commendation. This is an interesting word here. This one word in the Greek that's translated, received their commendation here in English. This is a passive tense word. It is the verb martyretto, which may sound familiar. It's where we get the English word martyr from. Uh, this word means witness or testify. It's usually how it's translated in English. So this is passively used here. So it literally means that God has testified that these Old Testament believers were righteous and pleasing to him. They received their condemnation, meaning it was God's testimony about them. Okay? It's not something that they did. God testified to their faith. This is connected very clearly to 
what we just looked at a little bit ago, chapter 12, verse 1, we're told that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in the noun form, martus, which is the word for martyr. We are surrounded by these witnesses whom God has witnessed about, right? God has testified that these people have true faith, and they are the ones who surround us, who are waiting for us to endure so that they can also receive the promises. Now again, before he begins his list of these Old Testament examples of faith, he begins at the beginning and connects all the people of God together in verse 3. By faith, we, I believe here he's speaking of all believers at all times, everywhere, right? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is something that is absolutely fundamental to our faith. We must believe that God created the universe by his word so that, as it says, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, there's almost certainly a connection here back to chapter 1, verse 2, where we were told that in these last days, God has spoken, right? Notice God's word. God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Believing that God spoke the universe into existence and has spoken to us by his Son are bedrock truths of our faith. We've already established the fact that faith in Jesus meets sin opposition in every age. Now, in our scientific and materialistic age, this is usually one of the first things to go. All traces of God's involvement in the beginning of the world or in the current upholding of the world, right? Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, he was one free. All of those things are patently denied by our secular culture. It's easier to believe some made-up and ever-evolving theories than to humbly trust that God has spoken to us through his word and that what he tells us about himself and about the beginning of the world is true. So what does it look like, then, to trust God and to trust his word? We turn to that now as we see three examples in verses 4 through 7. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abel here is contrasted with Cain. Told that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Now there's a lot of debate here among the scholars whether this was but the reason why he accepted Abel's sacrifice was because it was an animal sacrifice and there was blood, which maybe pointed forward to Christ's sacrifice or to the, to the sacrificial system, and because Cain's sacrifice was fruit of the ground. But we're actually not told uh, anywhere in Scripture what the reason was, and I think it's best not to speculate about the reason for acceptance being connected with the nature of the gifts. As we see in other places in Scripture, uh, it's not the nature of the gifts or the quantity of the gifts, but it's about the heart of the giver of the gifts, right? I think that's what we're meant to see here, that Abel trusted God, Abel believed in God, and Cain did not. So it's, it's not about these external things, it's about the internal things. So Abel was commended as righteous because he trusted the Lord and Cain didn't. In fact, Cain was jealous of Abel and murdered him. You see that at the end of Verse 4, where it says, 
Speaking of Abel, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Probably a reference to Genesis 4.10 when God told Cain that Abel's blood was crying to him from the ground. So there's this maybe kind of dual thing. Uh, Abel's blood is still crying to the ground, and then Abel's faith is still speaking, right? Speaking to us, speaking to all those who would come later who know the story of Cain and Abel, that those who honor God and, and offer right sacrifices to God will be accepted. What we see with Abel is that Abel died because of his faith. Next, we see the opposite. Enoch, because of his faith, did not see death. God actually took Enoch before he died, and it says that he was commended as having pleased God. So we see with Abel and Enoch, the refrain from 1038, living by faith and pleasing God. We are reminded that since the beginning of time, this has been the way that a right relationship with God must be oriented. It's easy to overcomplicate this. Abel and Enoch, whether we live or whether we die, whether we suffer or whether we are relieved from suffering, they trusted God and pleased him. And that is what we are also called to do. Look with me at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, notice that, you've seen that name over and over in Hebrews, draw near to God. Whoever would draw near to him must believe, faith, same with the verbal form of the word for faith, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice just in verse 6 there, all those themes that are that we see all throughout chapter 11 and that have been introduced to us here at the end of chapter 10, they all come out. We need to please God, right? Or by faith, we can please God. We draw near to God. We believe that He exists. And we believe that He rewards those who seek Him. And again, these rewards are not something that we're trying to get for our benefit, right? It's God really being glorified in Him rewarding us for the faith that He has given us. It all comes back again. It all comes back to God being glorified. So if you want to a great summary of the Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to have faith? Verse 6 right here pretty much encapsulates all of it, right? I mean, there's a lot more that can be said, but kind of based on everything we've been seeing, this is a great summary right here of the Christian life. Believing God, pleasing God, drawing near to God, and being rewarded by God as those who see Him. Lastly, then, we see the example of Noah. Notice the theme that comes out here. We see that Noah was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Where have we seen this language? Verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Noah was warned concerning events as yet unseen. Noah obeyed God, then he couldn't see evidence of a coming flood. Now, there are estimates. Some estimate that it took uh, up to 120 years to build the ark. I think that's kind of based on some inaccurate reading text in the text. But most people with the, the numbers we have think that it probably took somewhere between 55 to 75 years for Noah to build the ark. Think about it. 
you imagine day after day doing something where there's, you have, except for your trust in God, you literally have no, there's no proof, there's no evidence that what you're working towards is going to come to fruition. It's hard for us, I think, sometimes to spend a few hours or a few days being committed to something if we're not sure about the outcome, right? 55 to 75 years because God said so, right? Because God said he was going to do something, Noah trusted God and Noah walked by faith. He walked by faith and not by sight. And you see there that he became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Which fittingly then points us to the heir, the true heir of all things. We already saw Hebrews 1 2. Jesus, the Son of God, whose own second coming will do what the flood of Noah's day foreshadowed. There's a say here in 11 7, second half there. He constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the ark was constructed for the saving and the preservation of Noah's family, and therefore a remnant of mankind, but it also spelled the destruction and judgment of the world, of those who mocked God, of those who did not believe Noah's warnings. Jesus speaks of his own return in Matthew chapter 24 as something that will also divide humanity. The things that we've seen in the last half of chapter 10, and in these examples of faith so far in chapter 11, will be clearly seen. There are those who have faith and who please God and who will be saved. There are others who, though they may have shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, and blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they were the ones shouting a few days later, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Notice the difference? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. Oh, actually, we have no king but Caesar, right? Kill him. Sometime between his triumphal entry and his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, Jesus said this about his second coming. Notice the parallel here. Matthew chapter 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. This is not talking about the rapture, okay? You do not want to be the one taken away in this scenario. That is equivalent to being swept away in the flood. You want to be the one who is left. You want to be the one who is waiting for Jesus, right? Who is trusting in his coming. He goes on. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready 
For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. We walk by faith and not by sight. We must stay awake. We have a need for endurance in the race of life. Let's close again by looking at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus lived for us and died for us so that we might endure. Look to him and run after him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these reminders of what faith, what true faith is. Thank you for this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. And God, as we spend the next several weeks in Hebrews chapter 11, looking at those who have gone before us, may we not exalt them as the heroes. May we exalt Christ, the true hero the true heir of our salvation. May we look to him, may we run this race of life and endurance because he endured for us. May we throw off everything that entangles us. May we throw off the sin by your grace. God, may we run. This is not a race that we run individually, but we run together. We run with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We run together with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We lift up one another. We carry each other's burdens as we run this race. God, give us the grace to endure. Strengthen us. Equip us. Send us out to keep running the race for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.